Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is May the 9th, 2016, and it's a Monday. That means it's a listener feedback show, and boy, I've got a bunch of feedback for you and some really important stuff today. So let's tell you what we're going to be talking about today and the stuff that we're going to be handling from emails and stuff that came in on Facebook, etc. to me. Uh, first, I'm going to start off with one that I've actually received a lot of inquiries about since I posted on Facebook that I was going to be going this weekend, uh, but no direct email. What do you think about this? Uh, the movie Vaxxed. My wife and I went and saw that movie this weekend. We actually were able to meet uh, Dr. Wakefield, who was one of the producers of it, uh, the supposed discredited doctor. Um, I'm going to tell you why I think you owe it to yourself to see this movie. And in, in, in no two ways about it, if you go see this movie, you will fundamentally be convinced that the, the Center for Disease Control committed fraud on a vaccine study. Absolutely, 100%, unequivocally committed fraud. And i got some big news about this as well that I'll share with you when we cover that. Next up, I have a person that has a question about why is the two-party system so afraid of third parties? What is, what is, is there, you know, are they, because they've had such a, well, I mean, had such a minimal impact, you know, for so long, but yet they still seem to be afraid of it. And um, a, a commencement address uh, where someone basically bashes the crap out of this whole man that's been a politician and what have you for most of his life, and he's there to talk to the youth, and he takes this time to bash third parties. What, what's up with that? Um, I also have a great little tip for you guys. I, I did a fishing question that cleaned up the uh, batter for last week's uh, Listener Council show. And uh, I talked about the Mitchell 300 uh, reel, among some other things. And a individual from the audience sent me a rebate form that if you've bought one or if you buy one between now and the end of the month, you can get 10 bucks back. So it's a $40 reel. You get 10 bucks off. That's 25%. That's, that's, that's pretty damn good. So I'll just give you a real quick one on that, and there'll be a link in the uh, show notes where you can download the form to uh, to get that rebate. Um, next, uh, what about when you're assembling your bug-out bag and you're thinking about water? Water's heavy, uh, eight-plus pounds to the gallon. Two gallons of water 16 pounds. If you uh, have a pack that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 pounds and you, you, know, you add 16 to it, you have to 46 pounds. That's, you know, nothing, you know, even close to what I used to carry around in the military, but... You know, day-to-day -day average person, you know, smaller frame people. How do you deal with water? Because it is heavy, it is bulky, but yet it's essential. Next, um, I talked about shipping containers last week as well. When you know the concept of having a shipping container delivered to a remote site, and uh, then you know storing stuff in it, and the one negative being that somebody could, you know, with one pair of bolt cutters could just get in. And steal all your stuff, you know. Uh, you know, to get through the side of the thing, you need a settling torch. But when it comes down to just getting the doors open, pop a lock and you're in. And there's really no bolt cutter proof locks out there. There's ones that have made it more difficult, but you can always get a lock off. Well, I had a listener email me, and you might need some specialized equipment that you may already have. But if you do what he says, you're going to really up the odds that no one's going to get in your shipping container on a remote property. I'll tell you how to do that. Um... I'll also give you thoughts on making your own website and why I believe that WordPress is the way to go. I have a lot of questions about this from time to time, but many of you are wanting to start businesses, and you know you need to look good and look professional. And uh, a good website does a lot to help with that, no matter what you're doing. Even if you're not e-commerce enabled, you're not selling a lot online, 
uh, 9mile.farm, our farm website, is an example of that. We don't sell online, but the site really helps us to sell the high-end quality of what we're doing, uh, specifically when it comes to obtaining business with restaurants. Uh, we look like a farm online, and that means that to their eye we are a farm, and that makes them more likely to contact us so that we can show them that we really are. It's not just an image. And we'll talk a little bit about that and the things that you maybe should do for yourself and the things that you should not. Um, because, well, we'll save it till we get there, but there's a lot of people trying to do things with websites they probably should just pay somebody to do. Um, next, I have a question about are there risks when you invest, invest in treasury bonds, U.S. treasuries? Um, And is it even really an investment anymore? Well, right now, maybe not so much. But I will cover that one. It'll be a simple one. I also have a question from how you handle pushback on people who don't believe in your dreams or your your plans. You know, you're trying to get something done for your future, and you really believe in you're committing to it 100%. And you have people around you that say, well, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. And if it's just like, you know, random people and people that you don't really care about or like maybe even a brother that means well but doesn't live in the same house with you, so what? But what if it's the people you care about the most that feel like they're being pushed aside? That's a tough one. We'll try to do my best with that one. Um, also, I, I've said for years, I've said before Obamacare passed, this whole thing is a setup for universal, universal health care. They're going to make this, this so terrible that people will beg for it. The very people that opposed it We'll beg for it. Well, now over 2,000 doctors have banded together and asked for it officially. Now, doctors were the most opposed to universal health care before this all started. So if the most opposed are now starting to become for it, I'm telling you, I know many of you out there are like, there's no way it'll ever happen. You remember last time they barely got it by. We got the snow job with the limpy snow. One vote is all the way. only way they got it through, and there's so much resistance to it. I'm telling you, people are starting to cave in because they can't afford it. More on that today. Um, good question on a gun. Hey, guy's got a Muzinigant. Uh Wants to know if it would work out as an elk rifle. I'll give you my thoughts on the round itself because the rifle doesn't really matter that much as far as I'm concerned. Uh, layoffs are up, and the next leaning out is on the way. This one's from me, from Jack. This is not feedback. I'm warning you. You're, you're, you're about to see this economy get really rocky. I'm going to give you some reasons why and some thoughts about what to do about that. That'll, that'll wrap up the show for us today. So we do have an information-packed, very diverse show today. Uh, before we get into that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. The year 1782. I have Fundamental Change Begins. I have America's First Central Bank. And I have Lighter Than Air Flight. It's about the first balloons, the Lighter Than Air Flight thing. But I'm going to read Fundamental Change Begins. Something fundamental has changed, not only in Great Britain, but throughout Europe. The monarchy is an institution, is a dying system. Great Britain has lost control of most of North America. A ragtag militia with nice rifles but no shoes has taken it from them. Parliament has formally suspended operations against America. The American militias have hurt the British badly by losing. That is, draining resources from the British by running away and denying them victories. Examples are Bunker Hill and the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, where the British lost so many troops they would have been better off running away themselves. Certainly, General Nathaniel Green ran away throughout his fight in North Carolina. He was criticized for his tactics, but he whittled down British forces. So now peace negotiations are underway. But the British are still trying to win something. With negoti while negotiating with Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, and John Adams, the British secretly negotiate peace with France hoping to play one against the other. When Franklin finds out, he makes the American treaty contingent on a negotiated peace between Great Britain and France. This prevents Britain 
from split, splitting up the Allies. For, uh, for your information, by Alex Shrug, my take by Alex Shrug, France was in big economic trouble. They had financed part of the American Revolution but weren't getting anything back in terms of larger markets. And talk about hypocrisy. In 1782, France put down a democratic revolution in Geneva. Uh, the na natives of Geneva were taxed so heavily that they rose in revolt for a democratic government. France and others put down the revolt. The French leadership wanted to ease into government reform. When the French Revolution launched, the government wasn't prepared. King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette lost their heads, not because they were terrible leaders, but because they had lost their credibility as monarchs. No matter what they did or said, even if it was good, the people no longer believed them. President Obama's, Obama promised change you can believe in, and the people believed for a little while, but eventually the people stopped believing the leadership. They stopped listening And then they launch. I think we might be getting close to this again. What really hit me, what really hit me in Alex's thing today is the concept that the monarchy was a dying system. That the concept of royalty at this point had become a dying system. And it wasn't just in Britain. It wasn't just in France. It was throughout the world. In most of the world, you had a feudal system based on a monarchy. So you had a king, and then you had these various levels of, of, of governance that were underneath the king. Lords, etc. Uh, dukes, you know, duchesses, princes, and what have you. And that whole system had become so archaic that technology and knowledge had evolved to a point where that system no longer worked for people, and the people were then able to see the hypocrisy of the system for what it was. And once that happened, there was no holding it. There was these little things where they, you know, there's still a king of England, but uh, or to the, right now it's the queen, right? There's still a monarchy in England, but they don't really get to do anything. They don't really have any power. It's all symbolic. It's all pomp and circumstance. It's, it's not the way that the countries run anymore. And I think we're getting to a point now, and it's interesting to me. I'd, I'd like to hear from you guys your thoughts on this. Those of you who have been third-party voters or didn't vote uh, for many years now, like myself, is it interesting to you to hear the people that told you for decades when you said you were a libertarian or you didn't vote or you were an anarchist or you're going to vote third, third party, I don't care if it was a green party, whatever it was, you're wasting your vote. You're wasting your vote. You're, if you don't vote for, for, for our side, then it's a, it's a victory for the other side. You might as well vote for the other person. That type of argument. That argument, all of the talking heads on the radios and TV gave that argument, especially on the conservative side, for so many years. Is it interesting to you now to hear them make the same counter that argument now and go, can't vote for Trump, can't vote for Hillary, and don't tell me voting for, not voting for Trump is voting for Hillary. Is it interesting to you? Do you, do you just feel like maybe, I don't know, maybe your standards were a little higher than theirs and there's the same mentality in place and it just took something this corrosive to make them realize it? And if people are going to get to a point now where we, we look at our current governmental system and start to realize that we really are being given the choice of the lesser of two turds, that maybe it's about time for a fundamental shift in government again. And my bigger question would be, history has shown us this almost never comes without bloodshed. Is it possible that we've reached a point where it can, as a natural evolutionary trend toward liberty, occur without bloodshed or with minimal bloodshed? I hope so. 
but I'm not necessarily very optimistic about it. When you have a dying beast, it becomes extremely dangerous. And I believe, fundamentally, that the systems of government in the world today are as much a dying system today as the monarchy was in 1782. What comes next? If we don't control things, if we don't, if we don't think clearly, if we don't work hard to provide alternatives, generally speaking, in these transitions... There's a vacuum period, and that vacuum period gets far worse before it gets any better. I'd prefer to avoid that, but I really don't know how. I wish I had more optimistic things for you, so let's move on from there and hear from our two sponsors of the day. If you're like me, you're always seeking to learn more about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and personal liberty. Well, my go-to source of information for all of those things, for over two decades has been Backwoods Home Magazine, with information on everything from food preservation to alternative energy to choosing the right firearm and more. You will find it all from some of the best people you will ever meet. Check them out at BackwoodsHome.com. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. And with that, let's get right on into it. Um, I, I went with my wife on Saturday to see the movie Vaxxed. Now... You have to understand, my assertion for probably 15 years has been, I'm not anti-vaccine, but I believe that there's serious reactions and side effects. I've never really been on the huge bandwagon of vaccines cause autism, but I've always thought that there's probably some sort of a link, and it would have to do with the, how many iterations of vaccines, but I wasn't sure. And I've been called anti-vax because this is what we do. And this is, this is what I mean when I say this, from the history side, when things are coming to a head, when you get to a point where voices of reason are just shouted down and can't be heard, sooner or later, voices of reason grow in such numbers that either they are heard or they get tired of being shouted down and not heard. And when you say, look, I think we need to really research this, and all you hear is, it's already been done, it's already been done, it's already been done, like a bunch of freaking drone idiots. There was a guy at the front of the theater where this movie was playing, angry with people for going to see it, handing out brochures about how it's already it's been debunked, it's been debunked. And you say, how? By a study. What study? What study? By what means was it debunked? The guy that wrote it, his he was a fraud, okay? How do you know he was a fraud? The journal that published his paper came out later and said it was a fraud. Okay, by what methodology did they discredit his 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 study? What methodology was used? What, what was the reasoning behind it being fraudulent? No answer. And this is where we're getting with vaccines. So when I say I have questions about this, you're an anti-vaxxer. You're being an idiot when you act that way. And, and, and we're reaching a, a point of collision. So I'm going to ask you to consider go, going to see this movie because I believe if you do, you will understand why there's so much resistance to it Because you will come away with it no matter what you think about vaccines now with a fundamental understanding, not belief, not belief, not opinion, with a fundamental understanding that the CDC is the one that committed fraud. This movie is not about Dr. Wakefield's research that's 15 years old now. It's about a study done in the early 2000s um, by the CDC, by five people at the CDC, and... 
because of a whistleblower known as Dr. Thompson, and that's his real name, we know what was really going on. And I'm going to give you the short version, but I really think, I really think you owe it to yourself to go see this movie. So these doctors get together and decide they're going to run a, uh, a study to prove autism doesn't cause, or uh, vaccinate MMR specifically. The MMR vaccine is not the cause of autism and climbing autistic rates in, in the world today. Okay, That's the goal of the study. So first of all, this, the goal of the study should be able to, de to determine whether or not, not that it doesn't. But that was the goal. We want to show that it doesn't. Okay, So we're already flawed. So they, they agree to the framework of the research. How many people will be in the study? What, you know, where we will get the information? So they, they come up with the parameters of the study. And this is how you do scientific research. And then they say, this is, and this is how, once we have this statistical group and the numbers come in, this is how we will evaluate the results and then this is how we will report the information. Okay? This is a true, this is how a scientific study is done. Now, once you've done that, You're not supposed to change the rules because you don't like the results. Okay? You understand that. Okay, so when they ran the numbers, there were extreme elevated potentials for children receiving the MMR specifically under three years of age to have autism. Like, mind-blowingly high. Like, in, in African-American males... It was a, a, a risk factor of an additional seven, okay, which is hundreds of percents more. And and the lowest group in there was around three to four in their the, the magnification of, of how likely it was that that child would develop autism. Well, obviously you can't report this. So what they do is they just start removing people from the study, and they start removing the most at risk and the least at risk. To, to massage the number down. And a study that was supposed to take a year ends up taking four years before the results come out. And Dr. Thompson becomes so upset and so concerned about what's going on, he leaks information to an individual on the outside, but he can't just leak the information or he could go to prison. So what he does is he says, you need, under Freedom of Information, to request the following documents. So he tells them what documents to request, and once those documents are requested, the CDC has no choice but to provide them. So they get those documents out. And the documents show over a period of meetings, these, this group getting together and saying things like, it just won't go away. Okay, think, let that sink in for, it just won't go away. And there's notes, handwritten notes, on the documents from uh, Dr. Colleen Boyle, who's like the head chief of all these chiefs, right? These are all top people, saying, restack data, okay? Her handwritten, unacceptable. And multiple times, people emailing each other back throughout the group, I just can't get it to go away. But eventually, by leaning out and by manipulating the data and by excluding people from the study that were supposed to be in the study, they get it down to a zero. They weren't even acceptable when it was happy when it was like a one. And again, the greatest at-risk group were African-American males in this. And if you go see the movie, you'll see the documents presented to you, the actual CDC documents, and it will leave you with no other possible conclusion than the CDC committed fraud on what is considered the gold standard study. 
That study is the one that they always point to and say, see, there's no correlation, there's no risk. It doesn't cause autism. Okay. The kind of one of the, the, the most impactful things uh, in the movie, um, Dr. Jim Spears and Dr. Rachel Ross, uh, two uh, former members of the cast of a TV show called The Doctors. And these are people that shouted down questions about vaccines on that show multiple times. When the parents would say, you know, it seems like there's something to be concerned about. Basically shouted down people. Both of these doctors were willing to appear in this documentary, and I believe initially were like, yeah, this is all crap. What they did with them, instead of making a case to them, they just took the documents from the CDC and handed them to both doctors and said, you go through this data, you go through this research, and you tell us what you think. And both of these doctors said they felt betrayed by the Center for Disease Control. These were the people they always trusted to tell them the truth. These were the people that they had advised patients based on their recommendations for their entire careers and that neither one of them would inject their child specifically before the age of three years old with MMR. Neither one of them. These are doctors. So it's like, well, doctors agree. Well, these doctors don't. And all these, uh, this is what I'm trying to say. All these doctors did was read the CDC's documents. I am 100% confident at this point, not that MMR causes autism, but that MMR increases the risk of autism for some people. Now, what's causing all of it? I don't know. I don't claim to know. But I know this. If you got near my child with an MMR vaccine, specifically prior to about four years of age, I would break your skull open with a hammer before I would let you put that needle in my child. That's how I feel after seeing this. Now, is, does that mean 100% that this is the reason or this is the cause? No. But right now, we don't know, and they lied to you. They, I don't care where you are on this issue. Please Go see this movie. Find a place they're screening it and go see this movie. I also met Dr. Wakefield. I shook his hand. I looked him in the eyes. I believe this man is honest and trustworthy. I absolutely do. He's a very humble person. And his research, having been attacked, is ridiculous. First of all, again, this movie's not about his research. It is mentioned that you know I did this research and they, and they attacked me for it. But his research has not been discredited. In fact, there are 12 studies, 12, that replicate his results. 12. But again, it doesn't matter. Let's say his study was complete bullshit. Let's just say it was. That's not what the movie's about. The movie's about the CDC study that, was, that absolutely had fraud committed on the American people. Absolutely. And here's what I'm going to say. Those of you out there like, this is all debunked. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go get those documents. I want you to go get them. And I want you to read them. And then I want you to make a factual case for it not being fraud after reading them. I dare you. I, I, I defy you to do so. This has not been addressed. And this is one other big takeaway from this movie. One other big takeaway. Um... Congressman from Florida, can't remember his name now. Moody seems to be right, but I could be wrong. Uh, no, Burton. I think uh, Congressman Burton is the, the gentleman from Florida. 
Uh, no, that's the Indiana congressman. Um, I can't remember his name now. Anyway, there's a congressman from Florida um, that had hearings on this just last year in Congress and had this Colleen, Dr. Colleen Boyle in front of him and said, has the CDC or anyone ever run a study that compares autism rates with vaccinated children and autism rates with non-vaccinated children? And she talks around and around and around and around, and finally the answer is no. So let me tell you something. There has never been a single study that has compared autism rates between children that have received the MMR and children who have not received the MMR. Never, never, never. There's been lots of studies that looked at everybody getting it, but you've never had a control group with no immunizations at all. But I want to tell you one exists. I'll tell you one exists. It's the Amish. And they have almost no autism. That's another movie you can see if you want to. It's called Trace Amounts. It has a lot of overlap with Vaxxed. And that one you can get on DVD, buy online, that type of thing. Please go see this movie, though. Even if you don't agree with anything I said, even if you think I'm totally crazy, ask yourself why there's so much being attacked about it. Right now, if you, if you Google it, you find nothing but crap attacking it. Do you know what people fear more than anything else, folks? They fear the truth. I know it took a long time on this, but... I mean, I'm looking at my wife while this is playing, and I can see pain in her face because she thinks for... For two decades as a nurse, I gave these babies these shots. It's personal for us. And I believe that you have a right to know, and I believe that right now, if you've ever trusted anything that I've ever told you, if you've ever considered me to be an honest man, believe that I'm being honest with you right now. I believe you need to know, and I believe you have been lied to. And it's one thing to be lied to about whether or not you're going to have a certain tax put on you or not. It's one thing to be lied to about whether you can keep your doctor or not. And we'll talk about that in a bit. It, it, it's one thing to be lied to about something like that. But when you're lied to by people that know they were lying about something you inject in your child that has taken us from a point where I feel we used to have you know, 1 in 10,000 kids born with autism to like 1 in 50, 1 in 60 today. And there's a possible, there's a possibility that this is at least one of the causes. And they take that information and manipulate it so they can lie to you. That's different. I believe they're going to do everything they can to keep this down, and I don't think they can. I think this is going to come out now. And I think that if you have young children, you need to think about this. And you need to consider at least reducing the concentrations and how many and some of these can be deferred. They absolutely can. And I want you to also think about this. With Dr. Wakefield's recommendations from his study were simply as follows. You should do more research. And we should take the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines and make them available to people as individual vaccines so that we can separate them over time and evaluate children instead of giving them all at once. That was, that was what he was attacked for. Do you know what happened immediately? The United Kingdom ceased the importation of all individual vaccines for M, M, and R. And Merck ceased making them individually and immediately began making them only as the MMR shot. Like within a month of that coming out. Guys, there's something to this. Please trust me. I don't care if you drive a couple hours to a place where it's being shown. Go see this. Because I talked to Dr. Wakefield and this is the other thing. I'm like, why don't you just, why don't you just release this? 
online since they're trying to keep it in. He said, we have to get this into theaters. We have to get this into theaters, and we have to fill these theaters. And every time we fill a theater like we've done here, we can open five to seven more, and that's what's happening, more and more and more theaters. Because if people come, they'll play it. And when we get this into theaters, we get interviewed, we get on mainstream media, we make them talk about this. Here's the thing. Think about mainstream media with this. I know I'm going long. I know I'm beating this one, but please trust me. Mainstream media has never told you what I've told you. They've never told you what the actual story of the movie is. All they've done is attacked Dr. Wakefield's study. The movie's not about Dr. Wakefield's study. The movie's about the CDC's study and the CDC committing fraud and one doctor of a five-doctor panel coming out and saying, we committed fraud, here's the information you need to request, read it. And if you won't go look at this information now, it means only one thing. You don't want to know the truth. The truth sucks here. But never fear knowing the truth. Let's take something else so I don't blow a gasket. I'm going to go fast with a lot of these today because I took so much time there. But guys, please, please trust me on this. You need to know. And then you make your own decisions. You draw your own conclusions. I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm just going to tell you go see for yourself the truth. All right. So next up is a question from Brian in Oklahoma. He says, I went to a graduation ceremony this weekend in East Central uni uh, University of, in Oklahoma. Usually people accuse colleges of trying to sway their students for more liberal persuasion, but the keynote speech tried to do something different. The keynote speaker was a man about eight years old. He was an alumni, a lawyer, and a politician. He said himself, lawyer politicians are the least like members of society, so what came next should not have been a surprise. He stated the two-party system was the best way to run a society, and voting for a third party is nothing more than a youth youthful act of rebellion. After all, look at all the trouble Europe has with their three-party systems, he said. He also said that it is a ridiculous notion that morality can't be legislated. After all, the criminal law is based off the Ten Commandments. It is, is it possible that politicians are so scared of losing votes to a third party of this election that the old establishment of Republican would use a venue like this to spread bait, a blatant political message? I have no delusions that a third party like Libertarian will not win this election, but I bet they make a strong showing. Who do you think stands the most to lose from the libertarian movement, Democrats or Republicans? So thanks a lot to old man Frank Stars, ECU class of 58, I guess he kept the guy's name secret, his last name, for telling me not to waste my vote on a third party. I'm sure that's just a pearl of wisdom the graduates were looking for on their special day. Thanks, Brian in Oklahoma. Okay, first of all, let me just say I think that's all bullshit. I think if you're going to do a commencement address for a college, you should be giving the students advice for how to like pursue a career, to pursue their lives, to make the most of what they just spent four, six, ten, God knows how many years, and, and, and tens and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes to acquire a degree, what to go do. So I just think that's kind of bullshit to do that. But the core of the question really isn't like, are they doing this, but who really loses? I think initially, I think initially, if you have a big gain in the Libertarian Party. The, the the big losers are Republicans. I think the big losers are Republicans. Libertarianism is far more appealing initially to small government Republicans than liberals. Until liberals start to comprehend what libertarianism really is anyway. And then they start to realize like all the stuff they're most passionate about, the Libertarian Party says, yeah, that's that's how it should be. Because they're not really most passionate about, you know, more taxes and more free shit. 
I know that the Bernieites are kind of like that, the college kids running around chasing Bernie Sanders, because they've been conditioned to think that way. But in general, people that are thinking people that are Democrats, and they, they do exist, don't, you know, be so, don't be so ignorant as to like totally bash the other side to the point where you, you just feel like they can't possibly know what the hell they're talking about. Because they do. They absolutely do know what they're talking about in many instances. And they're, they're conflicted with, a lot of times, morality. Because even if they might be of the same belief that you are, like let's say religiously, about what people should and shouldn't do, what they also feel is, well, that's not the government's place to tell them. So I think that the Libertarian Party is totally capable of drawing equally from both parties, but initially it, it, it takes more education to draw the Democrat out than it does the Republican. The Republican, as soon as the Republican's fed up, if you put libertarianism in front of them, it's like a beautiful dream. It's everything they ever wanted, except there's this, you know, letting people smoke dope, and then they look around and go, well, that's happening anyway. And, you know, like, being okay with gay marriage, well, that, that, that ship has sailed. Um, so, like, there's all these social issues that they, that they had this, you know, re, uh, resistance to in many times. Or... Many times it's actually, I never really gave a shit about that. I just want smaller government. I don't want the government jacking around with people's lives. Where liberals generally are of the mindset the government should play a role in people's lives and help. So when you start saying, no, we should get out of people's way so that they can help themselves and help each other, there's more resistance. But if you, you know, use my favorite line, which is, you think you're helping, but you're not, to demonstrate all these things designed to help, have actually done more harm than good, I think that you have a potential to draw equally. It's just a lot harder. Now, what is the big problem with third parties for this two-party system? Well, it, it shines a light on the fact that it's not a two-party system. That's, it's, it's not that they're afraid of a third party. They're actually afraid of a second one. The, the, this is the, the United States two-party system has yes some some disagreement you know it, it is it is clear that in general most republicans are far more pro gun rights than the, the the establishment democrat that's that's one example and there's a few but overall in the direction they're moving the country larger government more government more taxes more regulation more licensing all of these things they're they're the same they really are And if you have a third party that's considered a viable option that actually contrasts with the two party members, whether it's for a Senate seat, the presidency, a House seat, doesn't matter. If it's, if it's actually co contrastable, the apparent difference between the Democrat and the Republican goes away. Goes completely away. It's like, wait a minute, these people are the same. And we'll save more thoughts on that. But I think that's the big fear, is that it will actually show the system for what it is, because they know this. Then I'll tell you the other thing. We're back to the history segment. We're at a point where the system is dying. The system is dying. People are realizing how many lies this government has told us in every walk of life. They're realizing the collusion of government and industry. In the pharmaceutical industry, people go work for the CDC, then they go work for someone like Eli Lilly or Merck or what have you and get paid, you know, in some cases, millions of dollars. 
And then they go back to work for Department of Health and Human Services or for the CDC or what have you. And then they go back over here. Same thing in agriculture. Monsanto to, you know, um, the FDA back to Monsanto. And this, this collusion exists. And you can draw a Venn diagram of this collusion in all 18 major departments of government. And there's enough now that everybody at least has one of those departments screwing up what, what, what that, what a person feels like should not be screwed up. Okay, they're like, okay, even if I'm okay with everything else, this is my issue. See, people only can be pissed off, really pissed off and motivated to do something about one issue at a time. Maybe two at the most. So one of the ways they overwhelm you is by there's so much going on at, at one time that people get distracted and finally just say, I quit and I give up. But when people start to get passionate about their food or their medicine or the environment or whatever it is, and they lock on one, then they see the collusion for what it is, and they realize, and then they develop pattern recognition. So when they do hear about something going on in that other department of government, like Homeland Security, that that they really weren't worried about, but they see the pattern that matches the one they are, oh, they're doing it there too. And I think that's what's happening is what I would call a great awakening. And I know it doesn't seem like it, When you have people out fighting over Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, and Hillary Clinton at this point, it doesn't seem like there could be any kind of an awakening. But think about methadone. You have a meth addict, and you got to get him off meth. You give him methadone for a time, and you wean him off. So Donald Trump is the establishment Republicans' initial methadone treatment. And then Bernie Sanders is the establishment Democrats' initial methadone treatment. And I believe like libertarianism is probably like stage two of methadone. You're still on the methadone, but you're coming off the addiction. And that leads obviously to the hope for a stateless society. Not the belief that we'll just have one. But what if we were actually working for one? What if that was the goal? See, I think that's what people don't understand about anarchism. Anarchism, there should be a stateless society tomorrow. No, it's the goal of our endeavors should be to disengage from government in the state at every level until such time as it's rendered irrelevant. No matter how long that takes. If that takes 20 years, woohoo. If it takes 200 years, woohoo. If it takes 1,000 years, fine. But that should be the direction. Elimination of the state at every facet possible with the goal of total elimination, even if we never get there. The goal should be that. And I think if you look at the historical evolution of governments throughout the world. That's the, that's the progression. There's no doubt that we're freer today than people were in the year 1600 under a monarchy. There's no doubt about that. Well, shouldn't the progression then be toward greater liberty and freedom? I'm just saying. And that, well, that's what they're afraid of. Because your liberty is their loss of control. Okay, next up real quick, I did mention the uh, Mitchell 300 is a great fishing reel, and actually all Mitchell reels have a rebate that's available from now until uh, uh, May 30th, so 5-30-16, and I think you have to have it mailed by then, not just purchased by then. But I'll have a link to a PDF, you can print it out, if you're going to buy a Mitchell reel in the next, you know, what is it, uh, 21 days, then get your 10 bucks back. And if you bought one last week on my recommendation, you probably just got it in the mail today from Amazon. Get your ten bucks back. I mean, I'll just why do I need to say any more than that? Take your money back. It's they're offering it to you. 
Go get it back. And if you've been thinking about buying one, like 40 bucks is a bit of much for real. Now it's 30 bucks. You'd have to wait to get your 10 bucks. But Mitchell's a good company. They'll send you the money. Uh, that's all I got to say on that one. Uh, the next one I have here is about water and bug out bags. Here's the question from Dean. Dean says, what's better for a bob? A camelback, a bottle canteen, or a filter and collapsing water bag, or a particular combination? Background, I have put together bobs for my family and choose a three-liter camelback and a filter and collapsible bag as a backup. While with the water and the gear, it's, this bag is heavy. I'm a 240-pound man and could take it, but my 125-pound wife probably wouldn't hold up under a really heavy bag for long. I got a bottle and a built-in filter for my son, but it got me wondering if I'm overdoing things with a three-liter Camelback on a bomb. I commute a couple times a week uh, in east and central Kansas, about 150 miles, and I always keep my bob in, in the SUV. My wife keeps her bob at home and stays in town, uh, usually stays in town, and always has a get-home bag in the trunk. Our current bug-out location, uh, bug location is to family, about six hours away by car. We'd love to hear your suggestions on best water management practices for a bob. Okay. Have you ever heard it's better to need something, not need something and have it, than to need something and not have it? Okay. So the camelback concept is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And three liters of water is a good supply of water. And you don't run around with your bug out bag on your back. So if you, if, if, if the, the platform of a camelback type pack works for you, then have it and fill it up. If it's too heavy and you have to go on foot for a distance, Dump the water out or drink it. It's not like you have to keep it in there. You you're, have yours in a car. Your wife has hers in her house. So I, I think there's no reason to not use a Camelback just because it can tend to be heavy. Because what situation you're in will dictate how you use your equipment. If you have to go a long distance on foot and water is plentiful, you may drink as much of it as you can to reduce the weight of the bag and then you may dump some of it out or put it into other people's canteens or what have you. Okay, okay. because water is plentiful and you just need to get from here to there. right? Now, if you're in a situation where water is not plentiful, you know exactly where you're going, you may jettison other gear to leave in the vehicle and, and rely on the water, which is more important to you. Do, do, does that make sense? So I fully believe that every bug out bag should have a container and a canteen uh, and canteen cup is a great option there because that gives you a lot of flexibility without really adding much weight or space. So uh, your wife and your kid should at least have a canteen. So they could have the canteen. Now collapsible bags for water. Sure. Sure. Um but you're back down to so what I see a lot of times people buy these really rugged, you know, big uh, hold 5 gallons of water. Okay, that weighs a lot, not sloshing around in a bag, right? So is it really that advantageous, or would you be better off with multiple smaller collapsible canteens, even freaking plastic water bottles? You know, what's wrong with getting a case, if you have the space in your vehicle, get a case of water bottles and throw it in the vehicle, and about once every six months, go use it in some other way because it's sitting in plastic in the heat and what have you, and replace it. It's not much money. Then that water's there. It's small. It's portable. It can be handed out. See, that makes sense, too. This is this is the problem, though, with, with bug-out bags. People get in this concept of, my bug-out bag is so I can put it on my back and travel long distances. You and your wife and your kid are probably never going to do that anyway. Uh, there is always the potential, though, to have to move on foot. And this is this is 
not just a water question for me. This is my overall view. You are better off stuffing the gills out of a bug out bag with everything you could possibly need and having your vehicle as a vehicle kit, having a small, like you said, get-home bag or mobile bag that goes on your back. And then when you have to go on foot, you go into that bigger kit, you pull what you need from it, you transfer what you don't need out of your carry kit back into your big kit, and you adjust based on that. You go with a modular approach, if that makes sense. How do I decide what do I need? Because that's the if you, if you could do that, you would just have the, the, the most efficient bug out bag right now. So you can't. Because there's always like, what if, what if, what if, what if. And I'll, I'll put it to you this way. This is the most valuable information, the most valuable life lesson ever given to me by a teacher in a government school. And I'm sure it was not sanctioned advice. I'm sure that Mr. Fox, my shop teacher, could have gotten in trouble for it, especially today. I'm sure he would lo lose his job for it today. As far as I know, at this point, he's retired, so he won't care if I tell you this. And I have said this before. My shop teacher and I one day were talking about the 30, 308 versus 3006. And he was of the wise opinion that there was fundamentally no real difference and it didn't matter. Uh, and whichever one you wanted, you should have. And I was making a case for the extra 100 feet per second you could get from 3006 and 220 green bullets. And I was going, what if this and what if that and what if this? So he looks around, pulls me close. He says, Spirico, I'm going to tell you something. And you need to listen and you need to learn because this what if stuff isn't going to get you anywhere in life. And he said to me, if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. That stuck with me. I was a freshman in high school when he told me that. And I still remember it to this day. And it's exactly, and you know what? It's masterful teaching. Because it's exactly what I think when I start hearing what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. So with emergency preparedness, we have to use what ifs to kind of come up with the giant overall view and then store whatever's possible for all the what ifs in whatever space and budget's available. But then when it comes down to it, we have to pull from those items based on the what if that has actually occurred. You're broke down. Where? Who's coming to help you? How long is it going to take them to get there? How far away is help? What is the environment like between here and there? What most suits you? Now you go into that big vehicle kit, you pull what is most necessary, the most usable things for the what if that is the reality, and you respond to that. That's, that's the way I had to answer this question. Hope that helps. Next up, and this one is brilliant, right? So last week we talked about shipping containers and, and one of their best uses, storage, secure storage on a remote property. The problem is when somebody sees one, they look at it and go, ah, if that's there, there's probably shit inside there. And if they're a scumbag, and you know the 10% scumbag theory, 10% of all people are scumbags, and it's in an area where there's not a lot of people to see what I'm doing, I could just come back here one day on my four-wheeler, You know, with my little case and all. Pop that thing open, and see what's in there with my, my bolt cutters. Take some stuff out of it. And you know what? If there's a bunch of shit in there, I'll take what I can take now. And I can just keep coming back and taking it a little at a time. And you know why thieves do that? For multiple reasons. If they do get caught, it's petty theft. They don't get caught with everything. And they kind of evaluate the way things are going on. And they'll clean it out over time. Well, here is a great idea. <laughs> Assuming you have a welder. Regarding this is from Darren. Darren says, regarding shipping containers for storage, in addition to a good padlock, which prevents bolt cutters, I recommend spot welding the door levers closed when you want to store something at a remote location. Just remember to bring a grinder when you return. 
Most thieves will give up on a door that is welded and move on to easier targets. Okay, now that is a very, very good piece of advice. Assuming, assuming you have a welder, you should weld the door, weld, weld the handles to the door. Because you, can you see this? Guy comes out with his bolt cutters. You got a good lock on there that tries to eliminate him. He finally manages to get. He's looking around because you know thieves are always worried. Finally gets that freaking padlock off. Goes to pull the and it won't open. And finally realizes it's welded shut. Okay, now you got to get out there with with a grinder and some sort of. I guess you can have a cordless grinder, but it's a pain in the ass. Now, do you want to weld it up and cut it off and re-weld it up every time you're out there? You probably don't, but it, you know what? If you have the equipment, it really wouldn't take very long. So that's great advice, and it is an option because remember, all of the theft, theft deterrent systems, what they buy you is time, and if you make things take too long, then the bad guys start to worry about it and go on to better things. I was thinking, though, another possibility with this would be to take higher value items, put them all the way to the rear, and build a facade. So it looks like you've reached the back of it, and you could probably put four to eight feet back there with a facade. That'd be enough. So if you did all those things, you know, you're, you're more likely to not have things stolen from you. So just just another thought about that. And if you pile a bunch of useless kind of twisted crap in front of it, it's a pain in the ass for you, but it also another way to buy time. Anyway, Darren also sent me something in the same email that I really wanted to pass on to you guys. Regarding tornadoes, and this is important to know, if your home is destroyed in a tornado, your insurance company will declare it a total loss, and you will not be permitted to try to salvage anything. My wife had a friend who lost her house in the Windsor, Colorado tornado several years ago. There was no rain damage in the storm. I was personally there minutes after it hit the town. The roof was gone and some additional damage, of course, but most of the house was still standing. My wife's friend wanted to retrieve her wedding album and scrapbooks. The insurance company would not allow her to get her pictures out of the house. Then they could not declare it a total loss. She pleaded with the insurance company, but they would not work with her on that. Being a subservient rules follower, she cried and accepted the loss of all of her pictures. Most of them were pre-digital era. Those that were not digital were on her computer and not backed up to a cloud solution. Of course, I would have salvaged what I wanted from the house without asking for permission. But folks like my wife and her friend are such rules followers, they would never consider crossing the hazard tape around their own home. I did not know about this at the time or I would have retrieved it for her. I would encourage those in Tornado Alley consider how to handle this situation prior to a disaster. Here's what I'm doing. If my shit gets tore up in a tornado, before they get here, I'm taking everything I can take that's of value and salvageable before they get here and tell me I can't. Absolutely. And, and this, is, this is criminal. This is criminal behavior by an insurance company. And it's backed up by the state. The only way they can do this is through the state. Tell you you can't go in your own house. You can't salvage your own stuff. This is crap. But this is what I would do, personally, if I were you right now. I would make sure that as much of things that are precious to you like that are backed up digitally and off-site. Okay, number one, just period. But number two, know this. Know what you were just told. Because this could, this could, you know, 
I've just done Granddaddy's Gun Club, and I've talked about my little Marlin 22 that's going to go to my grandson someday. Well, you bet your ass if there's a tornado, unless that thing's blown away, it's coming out of the house. So just know this and be prepared to act on it. And do so before the insurance company even gets involved. I mean, that's, that's what I would say. And hell no. Whoever is at that insurance company that told a woman who had just lost her home that you cannot go get your wedding album pictures, that person should have their ass kicked. That person should be bloodied and, and have their ass kicked, laying in the mud, whimpering and sobbing like a child. And I don't care that it's just your job. I don't care that it's just your job, because it's not just your job. It's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. And you know what? It just seems like something that something should be done about, that this should be made more known. Tell your friends about this one. This is disgraceful. And I'd love to know um, the name of the insurance company that did this. And I'd like to get in touch with them for an official response. So, Darren, if you can find out who the insurance company was, and you might say they all do it, but I know this one did it. I'd like to get a response to them. Why do you think this is acceptable? I bet they won't answer, though. Let's take another one. Next is like a business and technology one together. This says, Jack, I want to learn about making my own website. What type of programming system would you recommend? Where's a good place to look for templates to copy? And what R&D should I do before I even start programming the website? Background, through previous work experience, my dad and I know uh, about a small mining company that exists in the mountain Idaho border. Neither of us still work there, but my dad is still really connected to the owner and workers. They mine a product called Zeolite that seems to have a variety of uses. They have a website. It's horrible. Here's a link, and I don't even going to put it there. I feel that there's a lot of room for improvement within the website, organizing data, showing people what the data means, appearance, graphic design, etc., and want to improve it. Maybe even make my own company that becomes a middleman to the public. More background. On my way to mechanical engineering degree, I took a couple computer classes. I have no idea how much I've retained, but I say this because I'm not afraid of learning a system that might be computer programming intensive. Also, it seems like a good skill that I can possibly pass along to my kids. Thanks for your time, Jeremiah. Okay, so here's what I'm going to say. WordPress, WordPress, WordPress. Okay? Forget programming. If you don't know any programming and you want to build a website, use WordPress. You don't need to know programming. So we'll just put that there. Now, programming so that you can do cool things with WordPress. This is what you, what you want to learn if you want to become able to make websites and manage websites in today's world using WordPress. Graphics design, basic HTML, and PHP. And I would say if you want to go where you're going to be able to custom build your own sites, PHP and SQL database interface. Those are, those are your, that's it. Now, there's all kinds of great technologies out there. You know, everything from Ruby on Rails to God knows what else, okay? But, PHP is the most universally used online programming language today. And there are a billion people that are pretty good at it. And you don't want to be, whether you're doing it for other people or building your own sites for your own use, spending all of your time working on websites or spending hours and hours and hours to figure out how to do something that somebody else already knows how to do. So if you, if, you, if you use PHP as your programming language and you've taken a project as far as your knowledge allows for you to go and you need to hire a coder remotely through Rent-A-Coder or whatever and say, I need this project taken to this milestone and then given back to me for management, there are a gazillion people out there that are capable of doing it. 
You know, and I mean, it, it's just reality. And there's there's not much that you'd want to do at a level where you're asking me this question that you can't do with PHP. PHP is also the root of WordPress and all of the uh, what are called plugins that go along with it. So here's an here's an example of why I say WordPress is the way to go. So I just did Granddaddy's Gun Club. Now, if you go look at what that site does. It, it, again, I'm going to be posting some stuff to the beta group about volunteers for doing certain things to make it look better. But right now, that site allows you to go there, set up your account, and get a verification email. Click that link and verify so that I know you're a real person. Okay. Once you've done that, you can join groups and you can create groups. You can create groups for your for your own purposes. You can create groups that people can see but can only join if you let them. You can create public groups that people can just join. And you can create completely private groups that nobody can see unless you invite them to the group. Okay? That's an, okay. I did all of that in 10 minutes. The theme that's on there, the theme in WordPress is the dressing, the, the way it looks. I paid 50 bucks for that theme because it looked like a really flexible theme that I can get somebody to make look the way I want to, to dress it up even more. I did the whole thing in 10 minutes up to that point. Then I'm sitting there and I'm looking at when people are posting to their, their, their group forums. And it's this little window of basic just text. And I'm like, it'd be great if people could install a link, you know, make things bold, add a picture, stuff like that. So I go to the plugins portion of the back end of the website and I search for like, WYSIWYG, which is what you see is what you get, editor, buddy press, forums. And like a bunch come up. The very first one, I look at it. Yeah, that seems like it does what I want. I click the install button. It installs it. I click the activate button. It activates it. I go back to the page. I pull up one of those pages. There it is. All nice and ready to grow. You can make it bold. You can add a picture. You can put a link in. It gives my users that flexibility. While I'm looking for it, I see that, and I'm not going to do this to the site yet, but let's say you set up the um, Central Kentucky chapter of the Granddaddy's Gun Club, and you guys wanted your own blog, like forward-facing to the public for your chapter to make announcements and stuff like that. There's a little plug in there that I can install in two minutes that would make every group capable of having its own blog. I don't have to do jack shit except find what I'm looking for, click a button, and set the settings the way that I want them set. I don't know another web-based platform as flexible as WordPress with as many options. And there are a gazillion developers out developing all these plugins, most of which are free. Most of which are free and they have premium add-ons or things where you install a plugin and then they get to say, well, like, look at all the other stuff we could do if you bought one of our premium ones. And I don't mind paying for premium plugins. I had a major spam registration program on the Survival Podcast. I found a plug-in um, with a service attached to it. It does cost a little money, but it completely eliminated the problem. And I was able to find a way to do it without putting all kinds of captures in front of you guys' face and stuff like that, where it just knows that you're, you're not a robot. And it just doesn't let the fake res registrations through. So these weren't comments. These were regi people registering as users on the site just for the purpose of getting a user registration with a link on it as a page. And, and I was having thousands of them a day come through. Put this one little plug in, boom, it's gone. And whatever you can think of that you want a website to do, WordPress probably has, again, it's called a plug-in to do it. When I got BuddyPress, I didn't really know how it worked. 
So I typed in how to use BuddyPress, and I saw the second result on Google, the definitive guide to setting up a BuddyPress website. Step-by-step -step instructions with screen captures to show you exactly how to do it. That's why it took me 10 minutes. I just followed a template somebody else had. So WordPress as the core. If you're going to develop skills, I would say basic HTML, because that way you can, even with WordPress sometimes, like I'm doing something and I don't like the way it displays, And I can switch to the code view, and I can see some of the HTML coding, and, oh, that's the problem there, and I can fix it. Okay? And it's a lot better today than it was. I've been using WordPress since before I started the Survival Podcast. So 10 years? And 10 years ago, man, it's, man, it's 12 years. I think it's like 2004. So 12 years. Even, you know, 10 years ago, 8 years ago, there were a lot of times with the, the, the editor that things just wouldn't look right. And you'd have to go in and fix the code. And today, it's very, very seldom that that's the case. Um, updates. When you have to update your website, you click update. Boom. Done. Just does it. In fact, WordPress now updates itself. You don't even have to tell it to update itself anymore. You can turn that off if you want to. It's just the best way to go. And it can look like anything. In fact, there's a ton of websites you've probably been on. You're like, this isn't a blog. It's still run by WordPress. Because we can set up a WordPress site to be you know, your basic five-page site with no blog, or we can have one that is blog, and then the blog is under that and managed that way. If you go to 9mile.farm, that site is on WordPress. That's my, my farm site. Uh, I paid the graphics designer 300 bucks, and I paid the developer like 600 And I just said, this is what I wanted to do. They did it, and it was done. And this is the beauty with WordPress. Then you can manage it yourself. When you want to add a page, add a page. You want to go to the navigation bar, click where you want it to go. You want to do a blog post, you do it. You want to change a page, the text on a page, click edit page. Go in there and make the change yourself. You don't have to wait for your web guy to do it. And if you're going to be developing websites for people, you want to be able to give them management control. And if they say, we want you to do it, fine, then you want to bill for that. But you want your life to be easy. So you don't want to be FTPing files and shit like that. You just open it up, boom, and you're done. So again, if I'm going to learn coding today, I'm going to start with PHP, and understanding integration with, with SQL databases, with PHP. Uh, if I'm going to take a course, continuing education, that's where I'm going to start. I want to learn basic HTML, duh. But you can end graphic, some basic graphics design work. But see, to me, I can sit around and dick around with graphics design all day long, or I can tell somebody what I want. They send me 10 comps. I say, I like number four best. Here's the changes I want to make it. They send it back. I go, ah, the blue, they want the blue a little bit darker, or fade this out, or put this element in it, send it back to them. They send it back, and they go, is this what you want? I go, yeah. They say, okay, that'll be 300 bucks. And I say, here's 300 bucks. And they send me the final files in multiple formats, high resolution, ready to go. Well, it's $300. Yes, and it was, it was two days of work for them. Dealing with my picky ass, getting it exactly the way I want it, right? And it was no work for me. And I don't have time to be dicking around with it. So you can always, as a middleman, you outtask the things you don't do well or you don't want to do well, and you put margin on it and sell it to your client. That's the way to do this because I worked for a web development company as their director of internet marketing, and I watched them bleed clients dry. Because we had a high-dollar designer sitting there that basically manipulated photographs when it came right down to it. You know, they do this. This website would look stunningly beautiful. All it was was a, you know, we did one for a, a like a spa and place they did weddings and stuff, and it was just like a picture of a wedding. It's all it really was with some beautiful flowers and birds and shit. And it was just basically that was the background image, and the way it was formatted made it look really nice. 
You know, I mean, that could have all been done by somebody for a fraction of what this guy did it for, and then just implemented by someone that knew how to use framework design. So those are my thoughts on that. For anybody that's an individual that just wants a website for your own business, uh, WordPress and pay for the parts you can't do. I mean, just seriously, get somebody to dress it the way you want, and you focus on the content. Let's take another one. This one is from Stephen. Stephen says, "What are the risks of investing in U.S. Treasuries? I've moved most of my retirement investments from stock to U.S. Treasuries because it seems like the potential gains in the stock market, both domestic and international, is no longer worth the risk. I'm led to believe this is a very conservative, safe investment. But what are the risks? What happens to the value of my investment if the U.S. defaults on its debt payments or has to restructure due to increase of interest rates? Thanks for all you do. Love your podcast, Stephen from North Carolina. Okay, what happens if the government defaults on the dollar? Basically, is what you're asking." Okay, so then it wouldn't matter what you're in if you're denominated in dollars. I mean, when you say when you worry about that being the risk, the risk you're worried about, if you had all your money in in, in twenty dollar bills in a sack under your mattress, the risk would be the same. It just it just would be the same. So there's 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 literally no risk to treasuries from a, a standpoint of the underlying principle being lost. Okay, then there is from dollars. And if you're holding Exxon stock denominated in dollars, you run the same risk. If you're holding anything denominated in dollars, you hold the same risk. So it's it, it, as long as you're going to be denominated in dollars, it's not the risk to be concerned about. Plain and simple. Does that mean the U.S. couldn't go into economic default or, or whatever? No, it certainly could happen. It's not like the, it's not the most probable thing to happen in the next ten years that way. Um, doesn't mean the dollar might not take a huge hit. Uh, I do believe that a rebasing of the currency is the ultimate plan, and I believe now, you know, I've always said that. I've said that since 2008 when I started this, and I was saying it long before then. Um, but now I believe it will be in a digitized blockchain-like uh, bastardization of the Bitcoin protocol will be what the government will eventually do um, in the name of safety and security and protection of you. Uh, and that could kind of do be a big hit to the dollar itself, but I'm not going to panic about it. There's plenty of time between then and now. But what are the risks of treasuries? Okay, there's two ways to look at this. If you're invested in actual treasuries, in other words, you're holding the bond, the, the biggest risk is the term of the bond comes with penalty for early, you, you know, getting out of the bond early. Basically, it locks your money up for a term. So if you're in short-term bonds, like one-month bonds or three-month bonds or six-month bonds, that's relatively risk-free. But right now, the interest rates on that are so abysmal, you might as well just hold cash. How low are they? Uh, a six-month treasury right now is paying 0.41%. Actually, that was last week. Uh, today, 0.39%. 0.39%. If you're willing to tie your money up for a year, you can get a half a point. Two years, you can get three-quarters of a point. I don't even want to tell you, but 10 years, 1.79%. 10-year treasury, 1.79%. At 30-year, 2.6%. So your risk, if you go in a 30-year treasury, is you're tying your money up for 30 years for the purpose of getting 2% interest, which will never even beat inflation. So the risk is, while your money is in a treasury, it's not somewhere else that it might be able to do better. And for pretty dribbly little interest rates right now that don't look like they have any chance of going up anytime soon. Ironically, the harder it becomes for the U.S. To, to get people to loan it money, the higher the interest rate would go. Interest rates are not 
so low right now because the Fed sets the rate. That's the prime interest rate. That's the lending rate to institutions and banks. And that does have some effect on this, but not that much. The, the, the interest rate on bonds that the Treasury sells, in other words, the government loaning money, is based on, well, how much do we have to pay you to loan us money? Think about it this way. If, uh, if I came to you and I, and I wanted uh, to, to, to loan you money, And you said, well, how much money will you loan me? And I said $50,000. Would you rather I, I give you an interest rate of 1% or 5%? You'd say 1%, right? So the, the harder it is for you to get a loan, the more interest you're going to pay. Because the more risk there is to the lender. Okay, so right now, as bad as things are all over the world, the U.S. is the best bet for large institutions to put their money. Because even on a one year, you're looking at a half a point, and a half a point on a couple trillion dollars is a lot of money, right? A couple billion dollars is a lot of money. So right now, the world is more than willing to just throw money at the United States in the form of debt. And whatever is not being made up by that, the Fed is doing through quantitative easing, which really wasn't a direct assault on this little problem anyway. That's the basic thing. There's a tremendous confidence in the world right now that no matter how bad things get, your money's safe in a treasury. So consequently, the interest rate is ridiculously low. So if there was a little bit more concern, and it was a little harder for them to get people to buy treasuries, then they would have to raise the rate. So if you're tied into a long-term treasury, it's a problem when the rates do begin to come up and you're stuck there. Now, there's another way to look at this. It's not the same as, a, as buying a U.S. Treasury mutual fund because those are generally made up of a basket of different terms. They have some short-term, some long-term, and a lot of times as the older stuff's coming to maturity, since they're a mutual fund, they have to stay in what they say they're in. They can't put it to cash. They have to buy another you know, a certain amount of funds. And the fund will have a prospectus that says we're invested in X percentage of long-term, mid-term, short-term, etc. And they have to keep that allocation by law. So those funds can lose significant amounts of money. Their value can go down significantly as they have to sell bonds and buy new ones at different rates and costs, etc. So if you are in, let's say, a... 401k and you're saying I want to go into treasuries because I think it's safer then you have to look at that fund and how it's set up if it's a straight straight muni fund where it's just you know let's say 30 year long term bond funds it's it's it, it's a lot more stable but it's still a problem because what happens is as other investors in that fund decide they want their money the fund manager has to sell those bonds And if they're long-term bonds, you might be selling them at a hit. The people that stay in, when others get out in a mutual fund, take the hit. So as opportunities increase for others, then as they withdraw, you have a chance of that fund's overall value declining. So it's different whether you own the bond or you don't. So for, for my money right now, I want to be as close to cash as possible unless I know why I'm investing and what I'm investing in. It's not just about what's the relative risk of a mutual fund or a, uh, you know, uh, a relative risk of a, of a U.S. bond versus a municipal bond from a state or something like that. I'm only going to put my money into a place where I understand the investment and the risk. And I'm still, where I'm still in the market, 
I am still mostly into high-quality, dividend-yielding stocks that have weathered the economic storms. I'm not 100% cash. I am liquid. I mean, other than the stuff that I do have, some Roth IRA stuff and stuff like that, I mean, I could go to cash in an instant. I'm not stuck into anything long-term. Even if I'm in a vehicle like a Roth, I could, I could go that to cash. Of course, I'm not employed, so I'm not stuck in a 401k where they took that option away from me. That's, that's, that's the trap they set for everybody. They've made sure now in 90% of 401k plans, there is no dollar fund. There's no cash value fund. You know, there, there's, there's a, a, a government bond fund, and it's generally even more risk than the, the you know, like U.S. Treasuries, because Treasuries will make up a piece of it, but it will made, be made up of a, of a, a block of funds. Uh, we do have a broker again to see what they could do for us, and uh, she's a pretty good girl. She brought me some pretty good advice, but she also brought me advice. Like, we have some cash read up now. Maybe we could go into these uh, these you know, municipal funds. I said, well, what municipal fund? And it was like paying like three and a quarter percent, which is pretty damn low anyway. Uh, and I look at it, it's all like 90% of it's invested in Alabama, you know, where they went bankrupt over a sewer, and people don't want to loan them money. So, like, a high interest rate for a state right now is like 3%. She's like, you hate this. I'm like, of course I do. She showed me another stock that was actually a pretty good valued stock. But I said, why is it down so much? She said it pretty much tracks with the market. Okay, well, then I could just buy an index fund. Why, why, why would I buy a, even a good quality stock that tracks with the market? I want to buy a good quality stock that holds value against a retraction in the market. Even if it doesn't hold 100%, I want it to hold better than the market. And since there's stocks out there that do that, that pay dividends, why would we buy one that doesn't? And had a blank stare. Anyway, that's why I usually don't work with a broker. Um, but there's there's your basic answer to the municipal bond risk. Or I'm sorry, the treasury bond risk. There's not really intrinsic risk, but there is you know, opportunity risk. You, you have your money tied up one place, and you can't go to another. When, when you get into bond funds, there's always a risk that that fund itself can go down in value. I'll, I'll post a link to one of the considered like best the best of the best treasury bond funds, and you can see it ping up and down like a ping pong ball in value. They can set it like 38 bucks right now. Vanguard, I think it is. Anyway, I'll find it for you. I'll put it in the show notes just so you can see what I mean about treasury funds. You know, If you bought the bond, you're not going to be losing lots of money. It's just not going to happen. Your principal's protected as protected as dollars, and there's a small interest rate coming on every year. But when you have a bond fund mixing them up, it's not the same thing. Uh, real quick, before I go to the next one, I actually did look it up for you. It's called the Vanguard Extended Duration Treasury Indexed Fund Institutional Shares. Uh, the ticker on it is VEDTX, if you want to look it up. And if you look at it over, like, let's say, five years, it ping-pongs around like a ping-pong ball. And the other thing you'll notice is it paid a dividend in 2011. It paid three dividends. It paid four dividends in 2012. It paid four dividends in 2013. It paid four dividends in 2014. It paid no dividends in 2015 and hasn't paid a dividend in 2016 either. So, yeah, just saying it's not the same as buying the bond directly. Uh, let's take another one. This one's going to be complicated, but I'm not going to go real long with it because I'm just not Dr. Phil and I don't claim to be. Jack, how do you handle pushback or outright discouragement from those closest to you when pursuing your dream? I know you've addressed this in passing before, but I find myself getting serious pushback against my efforts to build a better life and livelihood while working a full-time job. Last year, I started an intensive operation running chickens for eggs and meat in a situation similar to Jeff Lawton's chicken tractor on steroids. This year, I decided and told them prior to scale it up as much as I could on a small lot, machinery-free scale. 
Uh, I'm currently producing about a cubic yard of compost a week from 18 hens on about 4,000 square feet on a 1.3 acre lot, which helps me develop fertility on some pretty thin soils. I also have about 19 hybrid meat chicks that are growing in a greenhouse and another nine astrolops in a basement brooder. This is all takes up a fair amount of my time outside of work and doesn't include other things like mowing grass, firewood gardens, infrastructure projects, regular house maintenance, etc. Now I have my nine-year-old daughter telling me that I don't spend any time with her anymore and my wife basically saying the same thing. I work full-time as an engineer, a job that takes me away from home about 11 hours each weekday, including the commute. My wife works full-time, so we split duties of cooking and cleaning up at night. I'm constantly feeling run down from all of this because I don't get as much sleep as my body really needs. Uh, trying to keep up with it all. I know that all of this is a necessary step, really scaling things up and being able to step away from my full-time job in the near future. But given the family dynamics, I see the competition between my family job and making homeschool, homesteading dreams a reality. In short term, keeping everyone else happy means that I have to give up work towards my dream and stay in a job I really don't like much, which will in turn make me utterly miserable. Continuing my ch to chase my dream will mean that my kids will say they're being pushed aside and my wife continuing to tell me I'm working too much, feeling completely at a loss here on how to proceed because I see each direction being a bad ending. Any advice on how to deal with the situation would be much appreciated. Chris, okay, I'm going to tell you, first of all, you need to do some real repair work with your family, period. If, you, if your wife and daughter feel like you're not spending time with them, that means you're not. And as much as I am about pushing people with a drive and desire to work, and I say that, you know, if you have a life uh, between, you know, 7 in the morning and uh, midnight, that means you have midnight to 7 a.m. the next day completely free um, if you have to do it to build a business or whatever. But here's, here's my issue with what you're telling me. You're not actually telling me that you're working on anything that really is a solution to your problem. Uh, growing chickens and making compost is not a business. Uh, if you can get to the scale you'd want to, sure, I guess it could be, but it's not going to happen the way you're doing it. Um, what is compost going to sell for? What, what, I mean, you're improving fertility to your land, but you say a business. What kind of business do you plan on having to replace your income with? Because what you're doing isn't going to do that. And there's no scale in the world with chickens and some broilers on an acre and compost that are going to replace a full-time salary with the approach you're taking. So all you're doing is damaging your family relationships because you have this compulsive hobby that is what you really want to do that's taking you from the limited time you have with them. So what we have to do then is we identify what the actual problem is and what the actual dream is. The dream isn't a chicken tractor and lots of chickens and times to play with the chickens. Okay? The dream you actually have is freedom and liberty to live your life on your own terms without being held into a job that you do not want to have. It is a self-funded life. Okay? So then what we need to determine is what is the most rapid path toward eliminating the job, not how do we manage chicken versus daughter because the daughter wins over the chicken every single time. Every single time. So what I would say is right now, instead of thinking about scaling up, you need to think about how you can scale back and make this easier. So a couple pieces of advice I would have is sit down with your family and tell them that you've gotten in over your head and you understand it. Because you have. You, you, if you're doing what you just told me you're doing, you're doing trying to do too much at once. And that, But you now have all these living creatures here and, and come up with a plan to scale back and reduce the number of hours of work. In return, what you would like is can we do some of it together? So your daughter says we're not spending time. So if 
and I don't know what little nine-year-old girls want to do. They want to have tea parties, play Barbies, whatever. If you want Daddy to play Barbies with you for half an hour, can you come help Daddy with this for half an hour? So that you're spending time together, both sides of it. And you have to be mindful that kids are often not going to want to do this type of homesteading stuff until they actually do it. So trying to involve them. And what this is going to have to do is an ego check. And sometimes things may not be perfect because nine-year-olds don't do things as well as 40-year-olds do that have been doing them for a while. So they might not do everything perfectly, but you need to be pleased that they're doing anything at all and make part of what you're doing like this adventure together. But 19 meat chickens, okay, they're in a greenhouse right now. They have like eight weeks of their life before they go graduate. And that just needs to be the plan. And we're not replacing, we're going we're gonna to take care of that. And we're going to put them in the freezer. We're going to eat good for, for you know, we're going to have a chicken a week for the rest of the year. I mean, you realize that's about what you're talking about right now at this point in the game. A chicken a year for the rest of the year. That lets them actually feel that something mattered. Okay? The chicken tractor on steroids. Um, turning compost takes a lot of work. Improving fertility, it's, it's, a, it's a noble goal. But... I mean, let me kind of draw a comparison to you with my life. So I had my little third of an acre in, in Mansfield. I had my little garden, and I would water it and weed it and plant it and things like that. But it was basically, you know, six four-by-eight beds That's really and a couple fruit trees. That's all I really had there. And so then I built a life that let me separate from the job. And then when I'm working hard on my homestead, That time, I used to be working in a job job, J-O-B type job. So now that time, I've actually freed that time up so that I'm, it's not resented that I spend the time doing that. And, you know, and I'm lucky. I've gotten into a situation where my wife helps take care of the birds, and she collects and washes and packages and sells the eggs. I mean, the farm is Dorothy's business, not mine. But that's because we both have so much free time. Now that makes sense in our lives. Now that makes sense because I'm a podcaster. I don't commute to work. I had to drive to Plano to go see Vax this weekend, and I was a damn wreck on the, some of the highway parts. I haven't driven in traffic like that at all for years. You know, it's a good problem to have, I guess. So what I actually think, Chris, is your dream is about not going to a job every day. But, but you, you're in a situation financially where it makes sense for you to do that. So what if you scaled back your life? Because right now, your, your homesteading is probably an expense, not a profit. And you scale back to only the things that actually are creating a profit for you. Now, a profit can be in, in, in fertility. A profit can be in food, what have you. But make it easier. Figure out how to lean it out. And figure out how to make it fun for your daughter so that she'll get involved. Now... You can have the reluctant spouse, and then, then I don't know what, how, how to marry this and balance this. For instance, we had a gentleman that came here from Wisconsin one time. He was a chiropractor, really, really super nice guy, and he was doing a lot of this stuff like this, and he wasn't in this situation. His kids are grown and gone, and, but his wife was animate that she was opposed to everything he was doing, so much so that she would, he would bring tomatoes in from the garden, fresh, beautiful tomatoes, and she would go to the store, and she would eat tomatoes from the store and not from the garden because she's that resistant. Now, if you're in that situation, I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you because my real opinion is pretty negative. It, it involves not being in a relationship that's not got some equal stake in it from both sides. I think you have a – like in that situation, I thought the gentleman explained to me, you have a spiteful partner 
that, 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 that hates what you're doing and therefore hates you at the core. And, and that I see resulting in divorce, honestly, especially at a point with grown kids where there's, like, you're not staying together for the kids or anything. Um, I don't think that's the situation you're in, but I don't want it to become the situation you're in. So family versus chicken, family, family, you know, animals hold you to land. Maybe this isn't even the time for animals to be in your life. You know, you could probably sell them all for a pretty good penny, the, the layers. And I know you, you want this thing, but maybe it's not the time. Maybe it's you need to get into a different position because your kid is going to go from 9 to 18 like that, Chris. And there'll be plenty of chickens when she's 18. But she won't be there saying you're not spending time with me. She'll be gone. In fact, she's going to go 9 to about 14. Bam! And that's the point where it's going to be like, drop me off here so my friends don't see me with my dad. Especially if you continue on this course. So, I think what you scale back is what you're doing on the property and you figure out how to keep some of it and you let your family see that effort. And you, I think another thing you have to do in these situations, like as hard as I worked, I used to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning sometimes to put a show together when I was driving to work. I would schedule certain times on my calendar, family time. And I would keep that like an appointment that I was going to go make a sales call. And at first when my wife heard that, she was very offended by it. She said, you shouldn't have to do that for us. We're your family. And my response was, if I would do it for a stranger I'm making a sales call because they're important enough to do it for, then you're damn sure important enough to do it for. She just didn't look at it that way. Schedule time. Schedule daddy-daughter time. Here's a fun thing to do with kids. This is for all you fathers out there struggling. How do I do this? Hire your kid as your fun coach. 30 minutes, two days, three days a week. And the way that works is they're in charge because you hired them. So you're going to pay them, let's say, 10 bucks an hour. I don't know. It depends on your budget. Maybe it's a dollar an hour or whatever. Because uh, they're going to get more fun out of doing it than the money anyway. But you hire them. Make it an official thing. You're going to be daddy's fun coach. Kids know how to have fun better than adults. right? So you're going to be my fun coach so I don't lose fun in my life. And what we're going to do is on Wednesdays and Thursdays for 30 minutes from 5 to 5.30 or whatever it is, you're going to be in charge. And you're going to say how we should have fun for that 30 minutes. Whatever you say goes. If you want to put ribbons in my hair... Whatever. As long as it can come off, you know, as long as we're not painting me with nail polish I can't get off and I'm going to get fired from my job over. Whatever you want to do, easy bake oven, take a walk, whatever it is, you're in charge. You help daddy learn to have fun like a little kid again. Try that. That's the best I can do for you, Chris. It's a tough one. Let's take another. Next one is from Jerry in West Virginia, and it opens up with the subject line, The one that I always read, and you would, most people would go, yeah, I was writing it, and I just go, oh, man, what am I right about now? Uh, TSPC, another Jack was right. U.S. doctors call for universal health care. I thought you'd be interested in this story I found on MSN. We need fundamental changes. U.S. Dollars call, doctors call for universal health care. Now, as I said, I've been saying that we are heading toward universal health care. We have no way out of universal health care. It's been the plan all along. And when they couldn't get it done in 2008, um, they decided that they would destroy what was left of the private health care system, so much so that the people that opposed it the most would end up begging for it. Now, we haven't gotten to the right-wing conservatives, Sarah Palin following, uh, they're going to give us death camp 
uh, death panels uh, people begging for it just yet. But I would say one of the most vehemently opposed groups to government getting involved in healthcare any further than they were back in 2008 were the doctors themselves. And when Obamacare passed, the doctors were like, oh my God, this is... And, and there was plenty of general practitioners that have actually quit since then. And the ones that stick around have seen all of the problems. So let me read this to you. Again, this is on MSN. This is actually on The Guardian. I don't know. I maybe saw it on a feed at MSN. A group of more than 2,000 physicians is calling for the establishment of a universal government-run health system in the U.S. in a paper in the American Journal of Public Health. According to the proposal released Thursday, the Affordable Care Act did not go far enough in removing barriers to health care access. The physician's bold plan calls for the implementing of a single-payer system similar to Canada's called the National Health Program that would guarantee all residents health care. The new single-payer system would be funded mostly by existing U.S. government funding. The, listen to this. This is just so ironic. The physicians point out that the government already pays for two-thirds of all health care spending in the U.S. anyway. And a single-payer system would cut down on administrative costs. So a transition to single-payer system would not require significant additional spending. Our patients can't afford care and don't have access to the care they need, while the system is even ever more wasteful, throwing away money on bureaucratic expenses and absurd prices from the drug companies. Hold on, let me pause right there. So do you, do you really think if you go to a single-payer, government-run healthcare system, creating what will in effect become the largest department of government to ever exist in our nation ever, that bureaucracy will go down? Well, you can make people believe it, even though it's not true. Uh, David Hilmerstein, a professor of CUNY School of Public Health at Hunter College and lecturer on medicine at Harvard Medical School, said that. Hilmerstein, one of the authors of the plan, said the proposal is meant as a rallying cry for physicians and other healthcare professionals around the cause of a single-payer model. According to the paper, even with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, many patients face rising co-payments and deductibles that compromise access to care and leave them vulnerable to ruinous medical bills. Despite the high health care spending levels in the U.S., health care outcomes are worse than in comparable well-funded countries. Anyway, you can read the rest of the article if you want, but the whole point is you now have doctors, and not five, 2,000. Now, that's a significant number. We have about 970,000 doctors in America, so it's not like it's you know 10% or something like that, but it's statistically important. And of the 970,000 doctors in this country, 120,000 of them are inactive. In other words, they've quit practicing, they've gone on to do something else, and not all of them are just old and retired, folks. I'm serious. Um, you know, Doc Bones is basically a retired doctor from our expert panel. Uh, doing other things now, but he's retired. He decided he'd been in the game long enough, sold out his share of his practice to his partners, and, you know, lives a good retired doctor's life. Um, whereas uh, there are doctors out there that are still in their prime years that are doing other things. My wife had a doctor she worked for. When she worked for this uh, doctor she worked for for 12 years here, the, initially it wasn't a single doctor practice, it was a two-doctor practice. And I don't remember this lady's first name, but her last name was Richards. My, my wife really liked her better than the doctor she spent most of the time that she was there working for, the guy that stuck around. Um, she was she was good, and she was kind of bold, too. I remember my wife telling me one time that uh, a lady came in and wanted Tylenol, wanted a prescription for Tylenol. Of course, she's on Medicaid. And uh, the doctor's like, you know, you're here in my office for a couple dollars worth of Tylenol. 
why not just go buy your baby some Tylenol? And she said, because if you write the prescription, it's free. It's free. So this lady looks at this woman, and she's got you know stuff to indicate she's a smoker. She says, I notice you're a smoker. How about you don't smoke for a day and go buy your baby some Tylenol? So obviously she was kind of fed up with the system at that point if she was willing to say things like that, and God bless her for saying it. Uh, but she now sells real estate. She's an MD, and she's been selling real estate for over a decade now because she just doesn't want to be a doctor anymore. So of the 120,000 inactive, and there's like 57,000 unclassified, whatever the hell that means, um, some of those people have just decided they don't want anything to do with this anymore. And, of course, the people that are you know really in the system are, are the ones that are sticking around, especially at the general practitioner level. So but what I mean by that is, okay, so like there's neurosurgeons and cardiothoracic surgeons that are at the top of their fields that make millions of dollars a year. And you know what? Here's how I feel about it. They should. Those type of people save, save lives daily. What's that worth? Those are the most skilled. Uh, and then there's other specialists and stuff like that. But in general, the people that just see random people every day and order basic tests and are just their general practitioners or like you're one level up. Um, specialists. These people just want to run billing anymore. That's what their job is now. It's to see people, have your staff do the actual work, do the few things you have to be doing to oversee it as the MD, and run billing. So let's simplify the billing. How much simpler is it if I only have one group to one place to bill? One place to bill. And I'm telling you it's coming because both of your presidential candidates, and if you want to still be one of those people that are ridiculous enough to believe that Bernie Sanders has a chance, he's all over single payer. So the three people running are for single payer. What you say Donald Trump isn't? Let me play something for you right now. What's your plan for Obamacare? Obamacare is going to be repealed and replaced. Obamacare is a disaster. If you look at what's going on with premiums, whether up 45, 50, 55 percent. So how do you fix it? There's many different ways, by the way. Everybody's got to be covered. This is an unrepublican thing for me to say, because a lot of times they say, no, no, the lower 25 percent, they can't afford private. But universal health care. I am going to take care of everybody. I'm, I don't care if it costs me votes or not. Everybody's going to be taken care of much better than they're taking care of now. The uninsured person. Right. Is going to be taken care they're of. They're going to be how? taken care of. How? I would make a deal with existing hospitals to take care of people. And you know what? This is probably. Make a deal. Who pays for it? The government's going to pay for it, but we're going to save so much money on the other side. But for the most part, it's going to be a private plan, and people are going to be able to go out and negotiate great plans with lots of different competition, with lots of competitors, with great companies, and they can have their doctors, they can have their plans, they can have everything. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. I'm all for repealing and replacing. And he says you can have all these different plans to pick from, and you can have any company you want and any doctor you want. And I mean, hell, that's what he's saying, right? So let me play this for you, um, a montage of the current ass clown in chief, Barack Obama, uh, while he was pushing for Obamacare before it passed. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor, period. Nothing in our plan requires you to change what you have. Nothing, nothing in this plan will require you or your employer to change your coverage or your doctor. If you like your doctor, you're going to be able to keep your doctor. They'll see that if Americans like their doctors, they will keep their doctor. First of all, if you've got health insurance, you like your doctor, you like your plan, you can 
you like your doctor or health care plan, you can keep it. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your plan and your doctor, you can keep them. Our approach would preserve the right of Americans who have insurance to keep their doctor and their plan. If you like your doctor, you like your plan, you can keep your doctor, you can keep your plan. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like the doctor you have, you can keep your doctor too. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Okay, so what he actually was working on was getting government more involved in healthcare and taking over healthcare and forcing people to buy health insurance, which is exactly what we got out of Obamacare, a mandate. That what was the goal of, of of Obamacare, mandating that the American people have to buy it and further regulating it. That that was that was all they could get done, so that's what they did. So, whatever lies you have to tell to get that done. Well, in Trump, what you hear is, we're going to take care of everybody. The government's going to pay for it. Who do you think's going to pay for it? But but no, you're going to have all these... So if you if you like your doctor and your plan, you can keep it. So it's the same thing. So we're heading toward universal health care. And, and here's the, the reality. Most of you will be ready to let it happen by the time it happens. You're going to put your hands in your face and look at the cost and say, I just can't do this anymore. And as much as you'll hate it, You'll be like, well, as long as it saves me money at this point, because my health care sucks, I can't see my doctor, I don't get to make any decisions, it doesn't cover anything. If it costs less, how could it be worse? Unfortunately, we'll get that answer as well, but it's it's definitely on the way. And whatever you hear from the Ass Clown Circus this year, and I'm not going to play the circus music today, just remember that just because they say this is how we're going to do it, doesn't mean it's how we're going to this is what you'll get out of it. What you actually can take for granted when you hear politicians saying they want to do something is the underlying thing they want to get done. And then you have to say, when you're making a decision about, you know, how dangerous is this person? Because that's what we should be asking about every person running for office. What is the probability that they'll get it done? What is the probability that they'll get it done? Well, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump all want universal health care. The three people that have been chosen by the country as the most likely to be running for office, and it's probably going to be Clinton v. Trump, are for it. What does that say about the direction of the country, whether you believe it or not? I'm just saying. Now, please don't be one of those stupid people that comments today and says, I can't believe you're supporting this. God, I don't understand where you people get this shit. They do that to me. I know it's a small minority of you out there, but God, it gets old. I can't believe that. You you sound like you want this to happen. No, I'm telling you it's going to happen. I don't want any of it to happen. I want the government completely out of health care. But it's not going to happen. This is coming. Mark my words on it. This is one of those jack predictions that's not an if, it's a when. Next question is from, let's see here, I got a molecule out of place or something. Uh, hey, Jack, I have a gun question. What are your thoughts on the Maz and the Gaunt for hunting mule deer and elk? I have a Maz sitting in my safe with all the modifications necessary to fit a modern scope. Is it worth putting the money into a decent scope for this rifle? Or am I better off buying another rifle and scope combo at a local gun show? I'm not particularly married to the idea of a Mazin over any other rifle or caliber in particular. Just want to shoot something with good off-the-shelf availability of ammunition and capable of taking mule deer and elk out at 200 to 300 yards. Thanks for all you do, Jaron in northern Utah. Uh, I would put it to you this way, Jaron. Would you select a 308 to do that with? Because ballistically, the Mazin Nagant in uh, 7.62 by 54R is about the ballistic twin of the 308. 
a little less power, but kind of like remember my story earlier about my shop teacher and my discussion with him of the 3006 and the 308 and what if, what if, and if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. Yeah, it's, it's more than capable of doing the job. Um, it's not my first choice for elk. It's certainly not my first choice for elk out to 300 yards. I am much more a fan of scaling up or down from 30 caliber with elk at longer distances. Why would I say down? Because uh, cartridges like the 7 Mauser, the 7mm 08, etc., with their long bullets at heavy for caliber loads with high sectional density have amazing penetration capability on elk. And in the words of Jack O'Connor, an animal with a hole in both lungs will run about as far as it can hold its breath. So I think you have a much better chance with some of those longer, dart-like, high-sectional density bullets of always getting a pass-through shot unless you hit major bone like a shoulder, and you should be shooting behind shoulders, not into shoulders. First of all, you mess up meat. Second of all, it's bigger, heavier bones, and you're less likely to take vitals. So I, I would actually prefer uh, a 7 Mauser, 7 millimeter 08, 270, 280 Remington, all of those options, above even a 306 for elk. Now, that doesn't mean for a second I wouldn't take a 306 elk hunting. Don't take that the wrong way. I'm just saying if I was making the choice for dedicated elk and mule deer rifle, especially when I start hearing words like 300 yards, it's, it's very difficult to compete with the 7mm at that, even scaling up to something like the 7mm Magnum. The other way I would go towards is the Elmer Keith concept, higher knockout, you know, Taylor knockout formula, Stepping up something like a 338 Winchester, 33806, 35 Whalen, those types of cartridges are just dynamite elk cartridges. You do sacrifice some trajectory at those longer ranges, but nothing you can't compensate for. So those cartridges I would generally choose over the 308, 306, 762-54R. And I'm going to hear from people today telling me how wrong I am. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm saying my opinion. Is where I would go. So then we go down to, so the cartridge is adequate for the job, though it may not be the best elk cartridge. The mule deer, not even worry about it. Just totally fine. Uh, and then say, well, is it worth jacking around with a Mosin? So basically it sounds like this thing's all ready to go. All you do is buy some glass and put a good scope on it. Would I do that? I'd probably scope it. If it's already set up to scope, I'd probably do that anyway. I would probably do that anyway. Now, if I'm going to go... Bouncing around the mountains, elk hunting, I want a lightweight rifle because ounces matter with the type of ground you cover. And I would be really hard-pressed not to look at something like the Remington Model 7 and 7mm 08. If, I was gonna, if you said, what should I buy for this? I'd say there's a thousand rifles you could buy. None of them are wrong, but take a good hard look at this. Now, you're going to end up dropping a grand right? Plus glass and mounts and stuff like that. So uh, is it necessary? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I think it'd be kind of cool to take that old Russian rifle out and take an elk with it. I think it'd be really kind of cool. So nothing against it. Just is it optimum? No. Is it adequate? Absolutely. What should you do? What's your budget and what do you want? I mean, that's what it comes down to. Would I go put a $1,000 piece of glass on, a, on an old Mazin like this? No. No. I mean, you can put a hundred to three hundred dollar piece of glass on this scope, and it, it it will be more than adequate for the job. Absolutely. Uh, I think we have one more, and it's not really a question. It's something I want to make you guys aware of. I, I've said that when I see a big hit coming to the economy, um, I will tell you. 
And I think you're about to see it. I think you're about to see it, and you're going to see it in, in job losses. Um, if you go to Google right now, click on news, and then search for, for layoffs, it will, it will frighten you if you start realizing how much coverage there is on this right now that you're not really hearing about. And it is mainstream media, but you're just not hearing it on the TV yet. Um, the canary in the coal mine is getting kind of woozy here. Let me read this for you. This is from Newsweek, but there's, there's dozens of these articles out right now. The number of Americans filing for unemployment benefits more, rose more than expected last week, posting the biggest gain in more than a year. But the underlying trend continued to a point of strengthening labor market. Another report on Thursday showed 35% surge in planned layoffs by U.S.-based employers last month. Most of the announced job, job cuts were contracted con, con, concentrated in the energy sector, which is reeling from low oil prices that have hurt uh, that have hurt profits. Initial claims for state unemployment benefits increased to 17,000 to a seasonally adjusted 274,000 for the week ended. Why do the people put this crap on their websites? I'm sorry, guys. It's just the, the damn page is jumping everywhere. Um, the number of Americans filing for unemployment benefits rose more than... Jeez. Stop trying to sell me something. Let me read. Um, God, I'm sorry about this, guys. Initial claims for state unemployment benefits increased to 17,000 to a seasonally adjusted 274,000 for the week ended April 30th, the Labor Department said. Last week, the increase was the largest since February of last year. We're assuming the move in claims is largely technical. By all accounts, businesses cannot find the skilled labor they need, said Chris Rumke, chief financial economist at uh, MUFG Union Bank in New York. Economists polled by Reuters had forecast initial claims rising from 260 to 260,000 in the last week. Jobless claims have now been below 300,000, a threshold associated with healthy labor market conditions for 61 consecutive weeks, the longest stretch since 1973. Everything's good, right? The four-week moving average of claims considered a better measure of labor market trends as it irons out week-to-week -week volatility rose 2,000 to 258,000 last week. Price for U.S. government debt, slightly uh, part losses uh, after the data, while the U.S. dollar edged up against the basket currencies. U.S. futures were trading higher. Um, heavy job cuts. In the second report on Thursday, global outplacement firm Challenger Gray and Christmas said that U.S.-based companies announced 67,141 job cuts last month, up 35% from March. The energy sector announced another 19,759 job cuts in April, bringing its total layoff of the year to 72,660. There were also layoffs in information technology and retail sectors. It's not unusual to see heavy job cuts in a strong economy. Companies are constantly retooling, and sometimes the best time to do that is when the economy is strong. Okay, let me tell you what's really going on here. Um, they want to make it about the energy sector. They want to make it that the canary's not getting woozy in the coal mine, but it's, it's, it's bull. It's complete bull. Um, you're, and they want to say, well, there's still employers looking for skilled labor they can't find yet, and they're not going to find it. Um, we have a very unskilled workforce in general right now. The jobs that are available, the, the, the people that should have the skills now, have come out of college and not found the entry-level positions to gain the skills. And no amount of H-1B visas in the world is going to, going to close this gap. Um, so what they're going to do is take the skilled workers they have and continue to evolve this automation so they can use less and less workers. There's some other things going on right now. How about I give you, um, from an article on Information Week, 10, American comp 10 tech companies with uh, expected layoffs this, uh, 
this year and just how many. The first one, and I won't give you like a big thing on the companies, just what their estimated number of employees they're going to cut. VMware will cut between 1,700 and 2,500 employees this year. Symantec will cut about 2,800 employees this year. Yahoo will cut 3,500 more employees this year. I, I, I don't even know if they really have 3,500 people still working for Yahoo. Remember when it traded for $300 a share? EMC will cut about 10,000 employees this year. This is planned. Like they, They're saying this is what we're going to do. Cisco is estimating that they'll cut up to 14,000 jobs this year. Cisco, you know, the giant tech giant. I remember when I used to um, do, you know, the technology uh, shows when I was in, you know, testing with Fluke Networks and I was with uh, uh, Garrett Com selling uh, Ethernet hardware and stuff back in the early 2000s. And when you went to a tech show, like a, uh, one of the big tech shows, Cisco would, would have like a quarter of a floor. Yeah, and they're cutting that many people. HP uh, is going to cut 14,000 people uh, this coming year. Microsoft will cut 18,000 employees this year. Oracle plans to cut about 26,000 people this year. HP could cut up to 72,000 employees this year. It's not their plan, but it's it's what estimates are by the analysts writing this article. Uh, they will eliminate 3,000 positions by the end of the first quarter, and will and they they already have filed with SEC that by 2018 that they'll cut at least 30,000. So that's in their SEC filing, 30,000 jobs by 2018. And it's estimated IBM could cut 95,000 employees. So all in total. Uh, that could be 260,000 tech layoffs this year. 260,000. Um, remember how the whole, you know, the jobless rate's below 300,000? Yeah, okay. Um, now, again, these are projections. They are based on the, what the companies say they're going to do, plus this analyst looking at it and saying, hey, I think they could do more. What if he's off by 50%? What if he's half wrong? And it's 130,000 tech jobs laid off from these types of companies. These are big companies. One sector, one sector. Say it's a hundred thousand. Why aren't you hearing about this? Because it's not just energy. It's it's every sector is looking to do this. This is two thousand eight all over again for a different reason. So, in two thousand eight, once the crash happened, companies leaned out for survival purposes, and they did not rehire anywhere near what they leaned out. They've, they've built back up some, but nowhere near. And I said back then, that your jobs didn't go to India and China. Your jobs were gotten rid of. There was a lot of people in the workforce that their job was not necessary. And when the companies went into survival mode and leaned out, they realized we didn't need half of these people, so let's just hire half of them back. And the ones that they really want to hire back now, they can't find the people that can actually do the, the, the skilled jobs in enough numbers. to, to So... Everything's moved toward automation for a variety of reasons we won't rehash. It's not about minimum wage alone. It's about the problems with people. But what else has happened that we've covered today? The cost of insuring people. So the cost of insuring people has gone through the roof. And trust me, if we go to single payer, they're going to make the employers pay for a lot of it. They're going to say the government's paying for it, but we know how that works. So that's not going to go away. So what employers are starting to see employees as as an expense versus an asset. Now, they've always done that to agree, but more and more. What's happening is every time a change in regulation or technology comes along, 
uh, regulation that's heaped on the employer or technology they refuse to adapt that their competitors do, the number of employees that are an expense versus a profit go up. So this is, this is the beginning of a great leaning out. Um, we're going to see employers across this country leaning out, trimming the fat yet again, and they've learned, and they're going to trim the fat in advance of the downturn. There's a downturn coming for a variety of reasons right now, um, but one is the leaning out will cause a downturn. It's ironic. So if I'm a company with 100,000 employees and I lay, and I lay off 20,000, but I continue to be just as productive as I always was, the problem is I've been part of a major economic downturn in the country. There's less consumer dollars to buy the shit that I'm producing. So now I got to get even more efficient with, uh, with, with, with automation and with leaning out with other methodologies. And now I re reduce my headcount even more so I can be profitable. And now there's even less people working for me to sell my shit to. And on and on and on it goes. And eventually you get to a point where you hit a floor. And there's a lot of pain before you hit the floor. It's coming. I've been, I've been saying it, but it's coming and it's coming faster now. And I think it will be enough to have an impact on the 2016 presidential ask clown circus, I mean election. I really do. I really do. I think this is going to be, right now, people are all about foreign policy and ISIS and make America great again and healthcare and whatever. I think by August we'll be looking in the face of another recession and we're going to be worried mostly about the domestic economy. And that will be the driving force of this election, and that's why you're probably going to have President Donald Trump. I won't come out and say it's a complete prediction where, like, I'm, I'm guaranteeing it or anything, but I think that's exactly the way this goes. And then you get your universal health care, you get all the other things Trump has promised to do to screw the country up, I mean, make it great again, and uh, we may end up with uh, the Simpsons being completely right with their prediction, not only of Donald Trump, but of Donald Trump in a trashed economy. Of course, When it comes to the politics of it, how well will it be that he can blame the prior administration? I mean, it worked for the last Asklon, I mean president. I don't know, but I, I see right now 2016 becoming a year of massive layoffs. And I also see that creating tremendous pressure on the already burgeoned student loan bubble, and I think that's our next financial crisis. Um, and I don't see any way to fix that one. How can you force people to pay back loans that they can't afford to pay? How can you forgive over a trillion dollars in loans? We did it for banks. Who knows? Um, what's the employment landscape going to look like in five years? Totally different. Totally different. The education sector's taking it on the chin, and it's going to continue to take it on the chin. We have no need of the millions of teachers we have in America today. We don't need them. We, we do not need a system that's run the way that it's run today. There are 3.1 million teachers in America today. 3.1 million. We need more. No, we don't. We need less. We need more efficiency in education. We need more self-directed learning. Having more self-directed learners means less teachers. That's what self-directed means. And it's already going that way. You can see that's why these, these schools have put in these... Uh, These attendance policies where they start threatening parents with jail time and truancy fines and shit like that because their kids out of school more than a certain number of days because it's all about money now. Way more than it ever was. Way more than it ever was. When I was a kid in school, if you were, if your parents said they were going to take you for a five day trip somewhere and they, they told your teachers in advance so you could get your work ahead of time and whatever, no one said jack diddly shit about it. 
Now, oh, you better not. You can't. You have to have a doctor's note. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. You won't graduate. We'll put you in jail for truancy. We need them in the seat because they're a dollar sign. Why do you think that is? Because they're, they're already being squeezed. The, the, this whole economy is, 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 it's not dying. It's evolving. And that means a lot of the existing guard has to die, just like government's dying. It's in its death throes. And that doesn't mean the end of the world as we know it, hopefully, anyway. That doesn't mean it has to be that. It just means that there is a major, major shift on the way. Be ready for it. Be prepared. I think the only thing you're going to need to get through this is to have your head up and be aware and look for the opportunities so that you can be one of those that thrives in what's coming. We'll talk about that more in the future, I promise you. Tomorrow, tomorrow we're going to talk about 20 items to add to your preps if you don't already have them. Uh, from the polling that we did for Tuesday show. So that tomorrow is a show all about what you want to hear about. And with that, I want to remind you, if you like the show and the work I do, you can join the Member Support Brigade to help support what we're doing. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. You'll see all the great discounts you get that will more than pay for your membership. And if you'd like to support us but you don't want to become a member or you already are, just remember, go to tspaz, tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z, dot com when you shop on Amazon. Just go to T-S-P-A-Z first. You'll type in one less letter. Do your shopping on Amazon like you always do, and you'll help support the work we do. Uh, next up, I want to let you know about our TSP Business Directory Supporter of the Day. Our supporter of the day at tspbiz.com is New England Defensive Training. They provide NRA-certified instruction and training in self-defense around in and around Maine. Go to newenglanddefensive.com to learn more. And remember, if you want to be found by or find members of this audience to do business with, you can do that at the TSP Business Directory. You can find it at tspbiz.com. And for as little as five bucks, your business can be listed there and eventually featured in a segment on the show like you just heard. I want to implore you one more time at the end of today's today's show please if you can in any way do so go see the movie vaxxed learn you know stop believing people that tell you it's debunked it's whatever just go fight go spend 10 bucks take a couple friends with you go watch it with an open mind and draw your own conclusions sit down with a beer after with your friends and talk to them and see if you really feel comfortable telling people to have their, their you know their 15 month old baby injected with mmr after you see what the cdc did You have to look at the behavior of what they did to understand how serious this really is. I'm sorry, there's there's no other conclusion I can draw. And I won't tell you what to believe, but I'll challenge you, if you find fault with my statements on this today, go see the movie. We've covered some somber stuff today, and I want to leave you with kind of a, I don't know, just something to relax a little bit with. So I'm going to give you a song at the end of today's show called Changing Channels by Jimmy Buffett. I think this will be another one of those songs that many of you, they kind of know Jimmy and maybe even like some of his music, never heard before. Um, and it's it's really a pretty song. It's one of those songs that, you know, a lot of people, when they hear it the first time, they're like, who is that? And like, that sounds like Jimmy Buffett. Wow, that's Jimmy. I didn't know he did music like that. One of those things. But, you know, to me, what Changing Channels means is that our course is never 100% set. We always have the ability to to change from one course to the next, to correct, to uh, to find a course that's better, to find our path. And you know, while this is a nautical theme, obviously it applies as a path as well in our lives. And what I find is, the further people get from the true path that they're supposed to be walking, the less happy they become. 
And the more they get in touch with their true path that they're supposed to be walking, the happier they become. And the more resilient and adaptable they become. And all of the tough shit we're talking about coming, they're able to just kind of breeze through it. We've all known people like that in our lives. You look at them and you say, you know, you, you're, you're not taking life seriously. You're going to get hurt, whatever. And they just, you know, you, you end up feeling like I'm telling them to put smoke alarms in, but my house is on fire. I'm trying as hard as I can And this person's just like kind of walking through life like a jagoff and, 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 and happy all the time and not just happy all the time, but successful. It's generally because that person is so on their path. They're so right about what they're doing for themselves that it's very difficult to knock them off of that path. And, and the more you get on your path, the more that becomes the case. And the further you get from your path, then, then the easier it is to kind of make things worse. Because when a person's really on their path, even if you push them off it a little bit, they kind of stumble aside like a drunk and just kind of come back on. So if you find yourself in the wrong path, on the wrong channel, be willing to make a change. Sometimes take a step back, sometimes take a step forward, a little left, a little right, whatever you have to do. But adapt, improvise, and overcome. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Somewhere on the old Gulf Stream Do they live 
Always will. 